please turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three. The coming day. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished." But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the the day of judgment and destruction of uh, the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. 
I wonder how you view being a Christian. How do you see the Christian life? Some people view it pretty much like an organ donor card. You sign the organ donor card, you put it away and then forget all about it. It really only matters when you die. Other people see being a Christian more like a driving license. You acquire your driving license when you pass your driving test. But every time you drive, you're effectively using that license. You see, that driving license impacts the rest of your life. Which is it for you? Is your Christian life like an organ donor card? Do you claim to be a Christian, but live your life as if your faith is of no direct relevance? Or is your Christian life like a driving license? Your Christianity is an ongoing relationship with the living God. We've seen over the past few weeks in this letter of Second Peter how, Paul is, how Peter is writing to Christians who need to be encouraged to keep on keeping on in the Christian life. Andy Robertson pointed out to us how Peter repeatedly emphasizes the importance of getting to know the Lord better and of growing in Christ-like character. And here in chapter 3, Peter says to his readers in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't settle for what you have. Your Christian life shouldn't be static. You need to grow. When Andy preached to us in chapter 2, he showed us how Peter was writing against a particular background. He was concerned about the danger posed by false teachers in the church men who were proclaiming wrong doctrine and promoting wrong lifestyles. And Peter comes back to that here in chapter 3. In verse 17, he warns, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The danger of being led astray by false teaching and false practice makes it all the more important for Christians to grow in their faith. So in many ways, chapter 3 picks up on themes which have been introduced earlier in the letter. What is new is the extended discussion of the day of the Lord or the second coming. And even that is bound up with what has gone before. It seems that belief in the Lord's return was being challenged by the false teachers. This evening, I'd like to look at chapter 3 with you under the three headings that are in the service sheet. First, remember revealed truth. Secondly, expect revealed truth to be challenged. And thirdly, live in the light of revealed truth. First of all, then, remember reveal truth. Peter begins the chapter 
by saying that he is writing to remind his readers to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter wants his readers to remember what the prophets foretold and what Christ commanded. In the context, I think what he has in mind is the prophet's predictions concerning the day of the Lord, that day when the Lord would come as judge. He's also thinking of Jesus' instructions to his followers, to his disciples, to live in the light of his return. Peter wants his readers to remember the truths which God has revealed through the, through the prophets and apostles. It's by remembering and holding to what God has revealed that his readers will not only remain stable and steady in the face of all the challenges they, they, they are confronting, but also grow in their faith. It's interesting that Peter speaks of the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through the apostles. It echoes Paul's description of the church in the epistle to the Ephesians as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets and apostles. The prophets were the representative channels of Old Testament revelation. And the apostles were the writers of the New Testament who communicated the teaching of Jesus. So where do we find the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord today? We find them in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We have a finished canon here in the Bible. And that's the word which we must remember. In this connection, note how Paul refers to the letters of Paul towards the end of the chapter. In verse 16, he says, There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable uh, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's a very interesting phrase, as they do the other scriptures. Peter equates Paul's letters with the other scriptures. The Greek word graphi, which is here translated scriptures, occurs something like 51 times in the New Testament. Except here and in a passage in 1 Timothy, where it also embraces some New Testament writings, it refers exclusively to the canonical Old Testament scriptures. What this means is that Peter regards Paul's letters as having the same degree of authority as the Old Testament scriptures. New Testament books written or authorized by Christ's apostles were obviously at a very early date recognized to be God's word. So Peter encourages us to hold to the scriptures. It's as we study God's word that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds and so learn not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, to the ways of thinking 
of this world. As we grapple with God's truth in his word, we begin to see things from his perspective and we begin to develop a biblical mindset. That's so important at a time when all sorts of ideas are flying around. Over the summer, the Bible teacher Don Carson was here in Edinburgh. He was speaking at the Faith Mission Convention. In one of his talks, he referred to a former colleague of his who had a host of witty one-liners. And he quoted one of them. You're not what you think you are. What you think you are. You're not what you think you are. What you think you are. There's a lot of truth in that. What do we fill our minds with? That's what determines who we are, the kind of people we are. That's why it's important to fill our minds with God's truth and to remember it. We need to remember revealed truth. Secondly, expect revealed truth to be challenged. The particular revealed truth that was being challenged when Peter wrote this letter was the truth that Jesus was coming back again to wind up history, consummate his kingdom, and judge all men and women. There was no sign of Jesus' return when Peter wrote his letter, and the false teachers were scoffing at the very idea. They said, verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus is taking a long time to come back. It's increasingly, it's increasingly unlikely he will. The whole idea there will be a final day of judgment, it's pretty far-fetched anyway, isn't it? After all, there's no evidence that God intervenes in history. The evidence all points the other way. Things have remained pretty much the same from the dawn of time. That's what the false teachers were saying. They were challenging the truth that the day of the Lord was coming. Peter makes three points in answer to these objections. First of all, he points out that the false teachers deliberately overlook the evidence that doesn't support their position. God has directly intervened in his world on more than one occasion. The act of creation is just one example. God created the earth in the first place by his powerful word. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. God intervened again when he judged a sinful humanity by sending a flood in the days of Noah. He intervened on these two occasions. Why shouldn't he intervene again? That's what he has promised to do, verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The God who created the world in the first place and who intervened decisively in judgment in the days of Noah is well able to call all men and women to account. Peter's second point is in verse 8. Andy read it earlier. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord stands outside time. His perspective is different from ours. What we perceive as delay is not delay to him. Peter appears to have the words of Psalm 90 in mind. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The context of these words in the 90th Psalm is instructive. It speaks of the eternity of God. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalm also speaks of God's judgment. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You see, the false teachers failed to remember what God had revealed in his word. And they saw things from a purely human perspective. They failed to realize just how limited their own thinking was. Peter's third point is that there is a reason for Christ's apparent delay in coming back again. Look with me, please, at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, Peter writes, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter makes essentially the same point in verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, it's because the Lord is patient with sinful men and women and wants as many as possible to come to repentance and to receive the salvation which he offers. That's why he delays his coming and defers his judgment. He's giving men and women time to repent before his judgment finally falls. The apparent delay doesn't mean that he's indifferent or powerless. Quite the opposite. It shows how merciful he is. It highlights his patience. But one day that patience will run out. The day of the Lord will come. It will be unexpected. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I think Peter is thinking of what Jesus said when he said that it would be like a thief coming in the night totally unexpectedly. 
The Lord's coming will also be cataclysmic. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The Lord's coming will be accompanied by truly awesome events. The sky and the heavenly bodies will be destroyed. The earth and everything that has ever been done in it will be exposed for judgment. There will be no place to hide. It's a terrifying prospect, and Peter means it to be that. No wonder we should flee from the wrath to come. Only those for whom the judge is their savior, only those who have received the salvation he offers here and now, can contemplate the day of the Lord with any degree of equanimity. We should expect God's revealed truth to be challenged. That's always the case. We shouldn't be surprised when what God says in his word is dismissed out of hand. Note what Peter says in verse 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You see, these people are not unbiased. They scoff because they follow their own sinful desires. They have an agenda. They're not prepared to accept God's truth because they don't want to accept it. And let's face it, that can be true of any one of us. Of course, we may think we're impartial in evaluating truth claims, but is that really the case? There could be someone here this evening who's dismissing what I'm saying from God's Word even as I speak, and it's because you don't want it to be true. If that's the case... Don't suppress the truth. What's the point of shaking your tiny fist in the face of such a powerful God as Peter writes about here? Remember revealed truth. Expect revealed truth to be challenged. Thirdly and finally, live in the light of revealed truth. You see in verse 14 that Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, in the light of all that he has said about the day of the Lord, about the second coming, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. It's interesting that the doctrine of the second coming is one that we don't hear a lot about even in evangelical churches these days. There are possibly various reasons for that. In the past, some churches were caught up with the minutiae of the biblical teaching about the second coming. They try to fit all the pieces together and work out when exactly Jesus could be expected to come. 
that's not the point of the teaching which the Bible presents about Christ's second coming. I like the story that is told about the Dutch Bible teacher Corrie ten Boom. One of the arguments is when the millennium, the thousand-year period of Revelation 20, will take place. Will it be before Jesus comes? Will it be after he comes? Or is it really just a figurative expression that we shouldn't try to make too much of? Corrie was asked the question, Corrie, could you tell us, are you a pre, an a pre or post millennialist? And Corrie is supposed to have replied, I consider that a pre posterous question. <laughs> I find it hard to believe that a Dutch lady could have come back with that answer. <laughs> but she certainly had a point if that's what she said. The point of the teaching about the second coming is not to encourage debate and discussion along those lines. Instead, it should determine how we live. That's why Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter doesn't want his Christian readers to be petrified at the prospect of the second coming. He assures them it's a necessary prelude to the inauguration of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, offering a perfect existence in a world forever free from sin and its consequences. But he doesn't want his readers to be blasé either. The fact of a coming judgment is something that even Christians shouldn't be relaxed about. We need to be sure we're ready for it. We need to live in the light of it. Peter wants his readers to live lives of holiness and godliness. They're to live distinctively, to refrain from those things that will one day bring down God's judgment on the ungodly, and instead invest their lives in things that will last forever. In verse 14, Peter tells his readers to be diligent to be found by the Lord without spot or blemish and at peace. He wants them to make every effort to live godly lives as individuals and to live at peace with one another. They're to work at being godly individually and corporately. There's a balance in the Christian life. We're utterly dependent on God's grace to become Christians in the first place and to go on living as Christians. And yet, our cooperation is required. Our choices matter. The Christian life requires effort. It requires diligence. And all we know about God and his purposes should be an incentive to make that effort. We should live in the light of revealed truth. In verse 15, Peter urges his readers to count the Lord's patience as salvation. He's picking up on the point he made earlier that the apparent delay in the Lord's return affords opportunity for people to repent and receive salvation. 
That's an incentive for believers to seek to make the gospel known and to bring others in. Again, we should live in the light of revealed truth. In this connection, Peter says something very interesting in verse 12. He urges his readers to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. What does he mean? Is he suggesting that the timing of the Lord's return is somehow in our hands? That by living godly lives, Christians can influence when the Lord will return? Again, there's a balance to be struck. God has foreordained when Jesus will return. Jesus himself said that. But God has also ordained that it will happen after all his purposes for saving believers and building his kingdom in this present age have been accomplished. And he uses human agents to accomplish these purposes. Therefore, from a human perspective, when Christians share the gospel with others and advance the kingdom of God in other ways, they are to that extent hastening the fulfillment of God's purposes, including Christ's return. Peter sums up the message he wants to communicate in the words of verses 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Negatively, they're not to allow themselves to be taken in by false teaching and false practice. They must see these things for what they are. But the best way of ensuring their own stability is by growing as Christians. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why the Christian life is an ongoing commitment It's not enough simply to call ourselves Christians. It's not enough simply to point to a decision we made in the past. We need to be growing in the present. Only by growing now can we be confident that we are Christians. If our faith is peripheral to our life, how genuine is it? Grow in grace, says Peter. What does that mean? It means experiencing the Lord's grace in ever-increasing measure. We tend to think of grace as God's unmerited favor, and the word often means that. But often in the New Testament, grace has a, a dynamic aspect to it. It conveys the sense of God's power at work. Think of the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. He tells us about it in the second letter to the Corinthians. We don't know exactly what that thorn was. It seems to have been some disability or handicap of some kind. 
Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove the thorn. And three times the answer came back. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's will for Paul was not to remove the thorn, but to give him the grace, the power, the stamina to cope with it. And so when Peter here urges his readers to grow in Christ's grace, he wants them not simply to have a greater appreciation of the undeserved favor he has shown them, good though that would be, but rather he wants them to experience more of his power at work in their lives as they depend on him more and live increasingly under his lordship. That's what growing in grace means. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter also wants his friends to grow in the knowledge of Christ. He wants them to get to know him better. They already know him, but there's scope for the relationship to grow deeper. That's true of any relationship. I remember hearing a good friend of mine speaking about how he became a Christian. John was brought up in a church-going family in South London. The church they attended was a high Anglican church, and John in due course became an altar boy. But one day he was invited along to a local Baptist church. And he went one Sunday evening. And for the first time he heard the gospel clearly presented. What John said about that evening was, at the end of that service, I knew God. He was converted as he responded to the gospel. And he realized, even as a young teenager, that he knew God for the first time. It's probably all of 50 years since that evening. And I'm sure that John would say that the way he knows God now is much deeper than the way he knew God then. He really did know God that evening as God brought him into his family. But after 50 years of Christian experience, when sometimes he's had to struggle to remember God's word and to live in the light of it, he now knows him better than he did then. And that's a challenge for each one of us. We need to remember God's revealed truth and live in the light of it. And by expecting God's revealed truth to be challenged and remaining steady under enemy fire, we shall not be moved from our position as Christians. We shall not be lose our stability, as Peter puts it. And that, of course, brings me back to where we began. How do you view 
the Christian life. How do you see being a Christian? Is it for you like an organ donor card? Or is it like a driving license? Shall we pray? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and, and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, we thank you that we have a glorious Saviour. And we pray that in the light of the gospel which he has brought into being, by dying on the cross for sinners like us, we may get to know him better. May we press on in our faith. May we hold on to what you have revealed of your purposes. And may we not be deflected by the attacks of the evil one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.